Well, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was a young boy, my family would sometimes go from our little hometown in Washington into the big city of Pittsburgh. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, pretty exciting, right? It's pretty, well, it was pretty cool, though, because to get there, you had to go through what's called the Fort Pitt Tunnels, which are, are two inbound car lanes and two outbound car lanes that were bored directly through Mount Washington. And if you've never seen it, it's a pretty spectacular sight, because before you go into the, the southwest end of the tunnel, which is literally into the side of a mountain, you see just kind of this regular... Uh, you know, run-of-the-mill, everyday western Pennsylvania, rolling hills. You know, kind of like when you go up the rest of Fort King here to get to Dade City. <laughs> but but, when you, but when, you, when you get into the tunnel, and, and it's really it's very dark, and it's kind of cramped, but then when you get through to the other side, it's like someone flipping on a lamp in the bedroom to wake you up. Because then you see this full panorama of the Pittsburgh skyline. And unless and you think that description is just a product of my childhood memory, uh, the New York Times has actually cited this view from the Fort Pitt tunnels as the best way to enter an American city, right? So it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. And we're going to look at something equally as dramatic today in our lectionary reading, a reading that also has to do with a mountain and a bright light and a spectacular view. But instead of Mount Washington, we're going to be looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, and instead of a panoramic view, we're going to be seeing the sweeping vista of the salvation narrative. And in place of a bright light to wake us up at the end of the tunnel, we're going to be looking at the blinding light of divinity shining through the Son of God. So wake up, rub the sleep out of your eyes this morning, and give the Holy Spirit your full attention because you may be surprised about what you're going to see. So we're beginning uh, in our lectionary, which is Gospel of Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Mark writes, Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters, one for, for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. And as they went back down the mountain, he told them, not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So our setting this morning takes place about six months before our Lord's crucifixion. And on, on this particular day, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter and, and James and John, on a hike, basically, on a hike up a tall mountain. Now, at first, the disciples might have thought this was just another one of Jesus' retreats to go out for prayer. Because it wasn't unusual for Jesus to withdraw from the crowd and climb a mountain and just to be alone to pray. And sure enough, that's what Jesus did. When he reached the, the top of this particular mountain, the, the word says that he prayed. And he must have prayed for some time because the disciples all fell asleep. 
Sounds like me anytime I sit down for more than five minutes, right? <laughs> but then something spectacular happened. Jesus' clothes started to shine with a, a white as brilliant as a flash of lightning. And then as the disciples kind of stirred themselves awake and, and rubbed their eyes, they saw the face of Jesus was shining with a, a sunlight intensity. Not because of any external light source. The light was coming from within Jesus himself. And his clothes were, as the text say, whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Just imagine. You know, when Vicky and I were, were first married, we uh, took a vacation to Cancun. And, and during our stay there, we took this kind of day trip to see the Mayan ruins and the, the pyramids at Chichen Itza. Anybody been there? Okay. Pretty dramatic, right? And it was, it was a long bus ride. And if you remember, those of you that have been there, the bus ride takes you through the countryside into the jungle. And it was beautiful. But it was surprising, too, because that ride, as, as you're headed there, gave us a chance to see the everyday lives of some of the poorest people that you can imagine. Uh, many of them living in homes that are little more than three walls and a, a tin roof with a dirt floor. But what was so surprising... What was so shocking was the laundry that they had hanging on the lines. Because in stark contrast to their dingy surroundings that they lived in, their shirts and their dresses were so white that they almost hurt your eyes. They were just so, so crisp and so bright, you could almost feel how clean they were as they moved in the breeze. And it was an experience that, that neither one of us will ever forget. And I see folks that have been there, I see them nodding their heads, right? It's something you'll never forget. Because it was very tactile, it was, it was very visual. And that must have been how it felt for the disciples to go from an ordinary day to the most extraordinary of days where the stark brightness of our Lord's appearance provided this glaring contrast between their dingy existence and the transformed life to come. It must have been almost unbelievable. But seeing is believing, right? Right? Because if, if you're anything like me, I always say to someone, don't, don't tell me, show me. Don't tell me, show me. Well, the transfiguration in our reading would certainly qualify as a, a practical, hands-on visual lesson, wouldn't it? And in today's reading, Peter and James and John are led into a first-hand knowledge of Jesus that they'll never forget. And they come away from this experience with a very real and very concrete sense of who Jesus is. Because, you know, no matter how bright or how white clothes can get hanging on a line, they won't change the circumstances of the people that wear them. But the transformation of our Lord and all of its magnificence pointed to a brilliant future that only Christ can provide. Provide because He is the King of heaven and earth. And for the men gathered on the mountain, that reality was inescapable because this was no ordinary conversion. This was a glorious incomparable, almost indescribable transformation, one that changed Jesus' whole appearance. And for just a moment, for just a moment, the glory of the Godhead shone through and the disciples saw Jesus in a whole new light, God in the flesh. In fact, two of them were still writing about it in their final days on earth. The apostle John, when he was close to 100 years old, wrote, about this event in the first chapter of his gospel, he writes in John 1.14, And the Word 
meaning Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Simon Peter, just before he was martyred, wrote about this in the first chapter of his second letter. In 2 Peter uh, 1, beginning in verse 16, he writes, For we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. And then he continues, We ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You see what an impression it made on them? And when when he writes about this scene, Peter, it's almost as if he's remembering it like it happened yesterday. Because how could you ever forget a moment like that? And that's not even the whole story because as absolutely incredible as the voice from heaven was and as incredible as the Lord's transformation was, that wasn't the only thing that happened that day. There's one more miracle here kind of tucked in between the two and that was the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Remember we read in verse 4 that Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. We'll make one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Pretty dramatic, right? But what I really wanted to know was, instead of that, was how, how did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah? How did he know who they were? Because Moses had been dead for around 1,400 years. Elijah had been dead something like 900 years. Yet Peter and the disciples knew them, but how? Well, this is just my opinion. The answer, in my opinion, is because they were experiencing a taste of the coming kingdom where the Bible says that we will know even as we are known. And that will will know and be known by everyone. And in the text, when Peter recognized Moses and Elijah, what was Peter's reaction? His immediate response of seeing Jesus transfigured with his face shining like the sun and hearing the voice of the Almighty and seeing arguably two of the greatest prophets that have ever lived is to put up three little shacks. Let me build you a couple little shelters, three booths, and just camp out right here on the mountain. But then you have to ask, why, why did he want to do that too? What was Peter's suggestion here? What was he getting after? Well, I think he had in mind the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. A feast that was given to the people by God through Moses while they were still in the wilderness of Sinai. And we find that, it comes to us from Exodus chapter 23. That reads, each year, this is God speaking to his people, each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. That's the celebration we know as Passover that became the Lord's Supper. And then the word says, for seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. And that one was later called the Feast of Pentecost. And the word says, finally, celebrate the Feast of Engathering, which was later called the Feast of Shelters or, or Tabernacles, at the end of the harvest season when you have harvested all of your crops from the field. And, and here's the instruction for how they were to celebrate 
this festival. Okay, this is the, the reason that's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23 continues, For seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters in the wilderness when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you see, building these little, these little booths, these little shelters was nothing new for the Jews of Peter's day. They had already been doing it for a thousand years. And they're still doing it even today. If you have any Jewish friends or, or neighbors, you can see them, uh, these little shelters put up in, in yards or on patios in Jewish homes, to, depending on the time of year, any time from late, uh, late September rather, to late October. And, and they're supposed to recall Israel's hastily built lodgings in the wilderness and God's provision for them while they're traveling as, as strangers and pilgrims in the Exodus. So even though Peter was a little hasty here in wanting to build three of, of these sheds on the mountains, he wasn't crazy. He was on to something. Because the transfiguration of Jesus is, in a sense, the ultimate fulfillment of that ancient feast. The fulfillment being that God would dwell, that he would tabernacle among his people through the incarnation. Just like we read in, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He, he pitched his tent here with us. He took up residence right here on planet Earth. The one who put the planets in their place and keeps them spinning around. The, the one who calls forth the stars and the mountains and the hills. The one who made every creature that lives on Earth. Our holy God became incarnate. That is, he, he came in the flesh, tended his glory in humanity and was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary for us. For us. And there's something else very important here, an element of this festival not to miss too, because it was also a feast to celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. You, you can think about it uh, as basically like a larger version of our Thanksgiving celebration. It was a time of Thanksgiving for the autumn harvest and uh, prayers for abundant rain to prepare the soil for the next season. And it was also meant to foreshadow the spiritual harvest at the end of the age. So it's more than just a reminder of past deliverance in the wilderness because these tabernacles pointed to a time when the people of all nations will flock to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. In fact, the prophet Zechariah had written about it and said that when the Messiah reigns on earth in the millennial kingdom that he'll require, not request, but require all nations to come and celebrate this very feast, this festival of tabernacles in Jerusalem. And I think even more interesting, it seems like this is the only Old Testament festival that lasts into eternity. So I want to read this to you from Zechariah chapter 14. He says, In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survive will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the King, the Lord of Heaven's armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of Heaven's armies, will have no rain. And other nations will also be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of shelters. So, so what was Peter thinking when he made this request of Jesus to build these shelters? Well, Peter here is, is basically pushing for the millennial kingdom to begin right then. He's ready. He knows that passage from Zechariah, and he wants the kingdom come to come right now. But as, as always, he's jumping a little ahead of the gun, isn't he? 
He's kind of running out ahead of God's plan, but you can't blame him though, right? Who wouldn't want the millennial kingdom to start right now? But if you notice in his eagerness, he kind of interrupted an important conversation that was going on between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And, and wouldn't you just love to have overheard what they were saying? Right? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to know exactly what Moses and Elijah were talking about? I, I mean, I would, but then my wife always tells me I'm the most curious person on the planet. Right? Because I always want to know the story behind the story. At least, I, I think that's the kind of curious she meant when she said that. <laughs> anyway, she said I'm the most curious person on the planet. But either way, I, I really did want to know, and for that we have to pick up a piece of this story from its recounting in the Gospel of Luke. So this is Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36. Same story. Jesus took Peter, John, and James up a mountain to pray, and as he was praying... The appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking to Jesus and they were glorious to see. And here's the part I want you to catch. And they were speaking about his exodus from the world which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So now we know what they were talking about, right? It says they spoke to him about his exodus which was meant to be brought to fulfillment in Jerusalem, referring, of course, to his death. So now, that word exodus is, is never used for death anywhere else in the Bible, but it is here. The Old Testament uses the word exodus to describe bringing the children of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, but here, Moses, representing that Old Testament deliverance, spoke to Jesus about another kind of exodus, one that would be accomplished by his sacrifice on the cross, which he fulfilled at Jerusalem. And that's really what Jesus did for all of us, right? He brought us, brought all of us, deliverance from slavery to sin. And that was our exodus into the promise of God's kingdom. Now, now admittedly, the text doesn't give us Moses' uh, exact words to Jesus. But in the context, you know, I imagine Moses could have said, Now, Lord, the time is almost here. The time for you to fulfill the law that was given to me on Mount Sinai. The law that requires the death of a substitute for a sinner. The law that says in Leviticus 17.11, it is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. And he might have said, Lord, every ceremony, every type, every sacrifice under the old covenant, all of it, all of it pointed to you. And now the time is here for your death, Lord. And without it, there's no forgiveness for our sins. And then there's Elijah, who represented the Old Testament prophets looking ahead for the Messiah and as he spoke to Jesus, he could have said something like, Lord, since the beginning, all the prophets, all of them, including myself, pointed to your work of redemption. And we preached and we taught through the inspiration of the Spirit that the Son of God would suffer for the sins of his people. Just like Isaiah says, for all we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on you, on you, Jesus, the iniquity of all of us. And that it's only by your stripes that we're healed. That's the conversation that Peter interrupts here, right? But even before Peter could finish his words, God the Father interrupted him. Because we read, And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved Son. Listen to him. Right? It's almost like he said, Hush up, Peter. <laughs> Listen to somebody else for a change. right? And, and so in the same way that the disciples knew 
who Moses and Elijah were. They knew who was speaking to them from the the cloud. They didn't have to ask. They knew they were in the presence of God. And even more frightening, they knew they were sinners in God's holy presence. And when they heard God speak, they were afraid. But the story of the transfiguration wasn't meant to scare them or us into trusting and believing in God because look how quickly Jesus was there to reassure them. Jesus didn't reveal his glory to put the fear of God in his followers, but to confirm their faith. Jesus revealed his glory to show his disciples that his words were true. And Peter and James and John learned firsthand just who this Messiah is. And that's what the transfiguration of Jesus is really all about because after that they knew for a fact that they could believe Jesus and every single thing that he had told them. So much so that the disciples were willing to die a martyr's death rather than deny the truths as they had seen. And that's what it means for us too. Jesus is showing us that we can believe his word in this and a thousand other ways and leave us no doubt that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that he is worthy of our highest, fullest, and truest faith. And not just when we're on the mountaintop. Because the last verse of our reading today proves that when we read, suddenly they looked around and Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. Because you see, now they knew they wouldn't have to climb mountains anymore to be with God because he was right there with them all along. They didn't have to navigate mountains of commandments or try to scale the heights of obscure prophecy They finally knew that the days of needing a Moses or an Elijah to intercede with God were past, and now they saw only Jesus. And we have that blessed hope, don't we? Because we don't have to wait until we break through the darkness of of life to see that grand city ahead and to witness the transfigured Christ. Because we have that assurance that this truly is God's beloved Son. And you and I need to hold on to that fact, to that reality. As we emerge from those tunnels of our own ordinary lives, to begin this Lenten journey that we're about to come on this week, this Wednesday, reminding ourselves with those ashes of the the frailty of our human nature as we move closer and closer to that sacred moment when death and life met on a mountain at a spot called Mount Calvary, a spot where our own journey of faith intersects with the life and death of Jesus as we begin to make our 40-day journey through Lent that leads us directly to the cross. And so I invite you to come on that journey with us. You'll be in good company as we move forward together to the bright and glorious transformation that we'll see together in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that, uh, that you sent your Son to, uh, to live among us, to, to tabernacle among us, and to show us his glory, uh, and even more, Father, to show us his love by going willingly to the cross to pay for all of those things that separate us from you. So be with us now, Father, and help us to catch a glimpse of that transformed Christ and use it, Father, to transform our lives as we go back out into the world. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.